1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
2: Because Xi Jinping is so firmly in charge, especially of the military, is he really weak or under pressure or is he strong and in control? Because it gives you a sense of what you can do in response without escalation.
3: There are a few more turns of the screw and tightening the bolts and then the PLA is going to be ready and that will drive China's decision. And I think even for Xi Jinping, you know, I think Chris characterized his consolidation of power pretty correctly. But even for Xi, Taiwan is a crisis to be avoided, not an opportunity to be seized.
0: Chris Johnson is the founder and CEO of the China Strategies Group, and John Culver is a senior fellow on China at the Atlantic Council. Both are former senior CIA analysts on China. They join me today to talk about Speaker Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan and China's response to it. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks.
0: Chris, John, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's uh, great to have you on the show again, and it's terrific to have you together. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, so welcome.
2: Thank you. Same here.
3: Yeah, great to be with you, Michael.
0: We're going to jump right in here to a discussion about the Chinese response to Speaker Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan. We really want to kind of unpack everything here. And Chris, I'm gonna start with you, if that's okay. Why did the Chinese respond aggressively to the speaker's visit? What are the factors that drove them to do that? I really want to understand the Chinese mindset here.
2: Sure. And it's a, sort of a complicated at some level mindset and not complicated at all in another. I mean, I think there were really three primary factors. The first was Beijing and the Politburo's perception that the United States, through what the Chinese have recently been referring to as salami slicing tactics, which is somewhat ironic given that the U.S. used to refer to their actions in the South China Sea as salami slicing tactics. So there's a lot of salami being thrown around. (laughs) (laughs) That the U.S. has been steadily eroding its commitment to the one China policy. I mean, that's the main factor that the Chinese say, of course, is the foundation for the U.S.-China relationship. So in other words, if the U.S. is signaling Beijing that at least de facto and probably increasingly China worries At some point, the U.S. is abandoning the one China policy, then there really isn't much else to talk about in terms of bilateral relations. And moreover, in the past, when they assessed that the U.S. was heading in this direction, they've been quick to take what we might call demonstrative action to warn the U.S. to correct its course. So, for example, we saw this on display the last time the Chinese launched missiles into the Taiwan Strait in the 1995 96 episode, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that today. But we saw it again early, much more recently, early in the Trump administration when President Trump hinted publicly that he might just outright abandon the One China policy ahead of his summit meeting with uh, Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago early in the administration. And of course, in that instance, uh, Xi basically cut off all communications with Washington, including on North Korea, which was obviously a very hot topic at the time, until Trump basically genuflected and repeated the One China catechism publicly. I think what's interesting about this most recent case, though, is that It's an accumulation of actions by the U.S., not just these one-offs as in those two previous episodes, including public discussion of abandoning our policy of strategic ambiguity concerning the defense of Taiwan, an insistence on you know publicizing things such as FONOPS, which I'm sure John will talk more about in the Strait, and the presence of you know U.S. troops on Taiwan, for example, that we used to keep quiet, and a whole array of other actions that led them, I think, to conclude the message was necessary. And I think that's a natural follow-on to the second factor, which was an awareness on the part of Xi Jinping and and his Politburo colleagues that Pelosi's visit may, in fact, just be a harbinger of things to come. You know, in other words, although they certainly do not like Speaker Pelosi, given her long-standing activism, I think on China human rights issues, Tibet, you know, things like that, this was more about her standing as the number three in the line of succession. You know, something that the Chinese actually harped on a lot in their formal responses to the visit. You know, we also had, of course. 25 years between the last visit by a Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, in 1997 and Pelosi's trip. But then Minority Leader McCarthy made clear in his public statements around the Pelosi visit that he would be very keen to undertake another visit soon after succeeding Pelosi, should the midterm elections produce that result. And then, you know, as we're seeing today, just 12 days after Pelosi's visit, we have another congressional delegation, this time led by Senator Markey of Massachusetts, on the ground in Taipei. But I think the visits actually are probably only one one half of the problem from China's perspective. There's also a slew of these bills working their way through Congress that would fundamentally erode arguably the underpinnings of the one-China policy especially in in terms of potentially declaring Taiwan a major non-NATO military ally. Uh, this is the Taiwan Policy Act that's going through Congress right now. And probably more importantly, from China's perspective, would allow for the pre-positioning of ammunition and other supplies on Taiwan at the U.S. taxpayer's expense. And we only have you those arrangements with our closest allies in the region, as you know. So that just is not tolerable for Beijing. So my sense is that China did the exercises in that instance, because they know this is only going to get worse, and they wanted to put the White House on notice that they're willing to escalate. And quickly, the third reason obviously has to do with the Politburo's concerns about developments on Taiwan itself. Uh, They obviously will be holding municipal elections in late November, right around the same time as our midterm elections. While they don't have much policy significance in and of themselves, they could witness the virtual destruction, for lack of a better term, of the opposition party, the Kuomintang, as a viable electoral enterprise. And of course, the KMT is China's preferred political party in Taiwan. That would mean more freedom of action for President Tsai Ing-wen's ruling Democratic Progressive Party, which is, of course, the more independence-oriented party on the island. And like the U.S., then Taiwan will hold its next presidential election in 2024. Tsai cannot run again, which makes Beijing nervous probably about what she might do in her lame duck time. And the possible implosion of the KMT obviously makes it very likely that her successor would be another DPP president. And from what we know about the available candidates there, they're almost certain to be even more pre-independence than she is. So I think those three factors combined really drove this response.
0: John, walk us through how the Chinese responded militarily, You know, outline what they did, and of that, what? what was unprecedented?
3: Okay. I mean, in some ways, I I don't want to overburden the readers, but it was sort of what they, it was the 1995, 1996 military demonstrations over then-president Li Denghui's visit to the US. It was sort of that on steroids. But, you know, the unprecedented things we saw were primarily the announcement by China of missile impact areas in the water surrounding Taiwan. So, in the mid-90s, they announced one closure area in 95 and then two in 96. This time we had seven. And they fired ballistic missiles into at least three of them, including one on the far eastern side of Taiwan, where the ballistic missiles flew over the island and indeed Tai Bay. Now, these were exoatmospheric when they flew over Taipei, They were in space about 200 nautical miles up. But nonetheless, they had never done that. And the other really unprecedented thing in the missile domain was these are the kind of closure areas. And indeed, the Chinese refer to these as blockade drills. So what one tactic China could employ in a more dire situation would be to announce a full economic blockade that would be enforced by the Chinese Navy and the Coast Guard, which we didn't see last week but would also be enforced by the threat that ballistic missiles will be fired. So any commercial vessels or military vessels that are seeking to break the blockade could be subject to sort of um, random missile bombardment. We also saw a real increase in the flights on the Taiwan Strait by the Chinese Air Force and the Chinese Navy, which has its own fighter aircraft component. You know, we'd all gotten used to seeing um, them fly into what's called the extreme southwest corner of the ADIS since 2019, That means flights into Taiwan's air identification zone, which in the westernmost part runs right down the middle of the Taiwan Strait. So the Chinese had been flying into Taiwan's ADIS, if you will, air defense identification zone, pretty frequently since 2019. But they'd always done it in this spot where it was furthest from Taiwan, it was as far as you could be from the island of Taiwan and still be inside the ADIS. What they did during the most recent exercises was to fly much closer to the area right off Taiwan, like just north of the island and just south of the island. And, you know, at the speeds that these aircraft move at, if you're at the center line, you're five minutes from being over the island. So it puts a lot of stress on Taiwan's air force and their to air missile units to monitor the situation.
0: John, was there something that the, that the Chinese did vis-a-vis Japan that was unprecedented here?
3: Well, they, some of the missiles they fired over Taiwan that landed in that missile impact area to the east of the island um, also fell into uh, an area Japan claims as its exclusive economic zone. It was really something that drove a domestic reaction in Japan. I'm not sure what international law says about missiles falling in your economic, exclusive economic zone. Although it gives Japan, which is a very adroit user of its EEZs, to kind of claim extraterritorial rights it amplified the impact in Japan. That These were close enough, and the conclusion that was being drawn in Tokyo was, if China goes to war with Taiwan, it's
0: not going to be over there. It's going to be right here. And then, John, anything that they didn't do that was interesting?
3: Yeah. Compared to the mid-90s, they did not stage large amphibious exercises opposite Taiwan. That was a key feature of their mid-90s display. The other thing they didn't do is, and there was some dispute over this from, you know, the sources I can see on the internet, mostly uh, Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense, which is very good and timely, and uh, the Japanese government was also very timely with some of the information, for example, about the missiles falling in their EEZ. They didn't fly inside Taiwan's territorial waters nor sail vessels with inside within Taiwan's territorial waters. And if I could kind of, you know, take that to a higher level, they didn't take any action last week that would have compelled Taiwan to consider taking, you know, shooting at Chinese aircraft or vessels. Mm. And so that shows there were constraints here. So on one level, it was unprecedented, especially the number of of, uh, exercise areas around Taiwan, the firing of ballistic missiles, aircraft, crossing over the median line of Taiwan's aid is, but they didn't compel Taiwan to make a use of force decision. And before this exercise, some folks were concerned that in the event of another flare-up, you would see Chinese aircraft go right over the island of Taiwan, daring them to shoot. So on the one hand, it's kind of sort of reassuring that they didn't take that step. But it also means, you know, to mix metaphors, that the Chinese have some save rounds, where if there's additional behavior by Taiwan or the United States, where they need to up the ante and demonstrate
0: something even more serious, those are the kind of steps you could see them take. So, Chris, I'm going to ask John some more military questions here in a second. But in addition to the Chinese military reaction, did we see other Chinese reactions to the Pelosi visit outside the military realm.
2: Yeah, it's uh, interesting in that perhaps surprisingly, uh, they really didn't do a lot in those other domains. If we want to talk about sort of diplomatic or or economic things or um, even – in the sort of information space, there were obviously some things that happened. They did induce boycotts of certain Taiwan products, but it was very focused on agricultural products. You know, some folks had suggested, well, then it's not really that big a deal. They didn't, you know, do anything with uh, semiconductors, for example, or anything like that. But if you're the DPP, President Tsai's party, you do care about that because that's where your base is, is in those agricultural growing areas of uh, of Taiwan. And what they did do, I think, in those spaces, we could largely call performative. So for example, they did place these personal sanctions on Speaker Pelosi and her relatives, but didn't really specify what those would entail. Um, Some previous such sanctions, I think, had uh, prohibited visits to China or Hong Kong or doing business there. But, you know, that would probably have little meaningful impact on the Speaker, you know, as underscored by her basically (laughs) laughing it off, you know, in, in, in her public commentary. Obviously, they also suspended all the major dialogues with the U.S., including those on sort of the few remaining areas where the two countries have been working together somewhat cooperatively, such as climate change, and I think the other one was counter-narcotics. And they suspended, of course, the main working-level US-China military-to-military dialogues. But you know, you could say that that's almost been kind of F5 on their computer, given how many times they've they've done that in the past uh, for much lesser offenses, for example, arms sales and so on. You can argue, though, I guess, that the the cutoff basically eliminates any hope for moving forward with what the Biden administration has repeatedly publicly signals its interest in, in terms of these disc- Discussions on what they call military and security guardrails, in other words, things that are designed to prevent things from you know going off the rails. And I think, obviously, given what we've just seen, those are probably more necessary than ever. I think probably the suspension may also put an end to some hopes that some of the administration and I think on the Chinese side had that with the potential and and likely probable face-to-face meeting between Biden and Xi in November, either at the G20 meeting in Bali or the APEC summit in Thailand, or or perhaps both, that that would have allowed for some of those kind of long now dormant working level discussions that traditionally precede an in-person summit uh, to create the impetus for some kind of new, more sustainable dialogue mechanism that might have taken place after that meeting. So one indicator there, I think, will be to see how long the Chinese choose to keep these dialogues in the the deep freeze. I guess, and we just, per our discussion a moment ago on, on Japan, perhaps the more interesting thing to me was what we might call the informal use of the exercises to send diplomatic messages so again the landing of these five missiles in japan's exclusive economic zone uh, was unprecedented clearly meant to remind tokyo that there are costs to supporting the u.s and taiwan and you know a future clash and that uh, u.s facilities certainly like the kadena airbase are you know within easy range of chinese missiles and i think on that score the Pelosi visit arguably handed China the opportunity they've been looking for for probably the last couple of years to be able to signal Japan that uh, Beijing is taking note of Tokyo's shift from largely rhetorical or backup support in you know Taiwan scenarios to a more integrated and forward leaning. Posture. I think then it was no surprise, for example, that a Japanese Diet delegation led by a former defense minister was visiting Taipei just days before Speaker Pelosi's arrival. And the kind of Japan's shifting position in this regard certainly stirs Chinese concerns about resurgent Japanese militarism, especially now that the tragic assassination of former Prime Minister Abe means his ghost, if we want to call it that, will be hanging over even more prominently the Kushida government as it considers measures like revising uh, Japan's peace constitution, something that Abe obviously sought to do but was never able to achieve. And then just lastly, I think the missile firings around the east side of Taiwan uh, send a pretty powerful signal to Southeast Asian countries about China's ability to disrupt major maritime shipping channels in, say, the Strait of Luzon, for example.
0: So, John, let me come back to you um, with a couple of questions. One is, how helpful to the Chinese is it to have been able to conduct these military exercises? How helpful to them from a from a military training perspective?
3: I would call it marginal, probably. Uh, there were some assets, some facets, though, that were probably very useful for them. This is the first large public exercised by a command entity called Eastern theater Command which, which was stood up six years ago um, and probably has done training but this is the first time it stood up in something approaching kind of a crisis mode. So um, I don't know if you've been to some mili- or US military exercises they teach they teach what's called battle rhythm. they show what like 24hour operations, And the effect that has on command staff and command staff effectiveness, it gives you a chance to move some muscles, in this case, mostly the Chinese um, Air Force, the rocket force and some aspects of the Navy. But it didn't have any scale. And among the things like they didn't see, even though they called this a blockade drill, if China were going to do a real blockade or quarantine of Taiwan, it would primarily fall on the Navy and the Coast Guard. And we saw very limited naval involvement in these drills last week and no Coast Guard involvement. So it wasn't a rehearsal for the real thing in that regard.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris and John. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, John, that's a great transition to the second question I had, which is, From what we saw the Chinese do, did we learn anything about how they might conduct a military operation to force Taiwan back into the fold? I
3: think we got a pretty good example at limited scale of what a joint firepower strike would look like, either in a blockade scenario or in a more aggressive campaign that include missiles targeting the island of Taiwan and especially high priority military leadership or economic targets there. As you know, any military exercise by a foreign military, and adversary, is a bonanza usually for all intelligence services because they do things you don't normally see them do. You know, they have to move to the field. They have to operate in something approaching wartime mode. They may activate a broader array of their sensor network. So you'll find that there's a lot to go through afterward typically in these scenario. I don't think we saw anything near the scale of what we'd see in the event of a real military assault on Taiwan, even a blockade scenario, let alone an invasion. Because if China were really going to, you know, drop, finally drop everything and decide that they were going to compel unification, it would involve national mobilization, not only of the PLA, but the entire Chinese economy and society. So this is not a rehearsal of anything like that scale But it did send a signal to the population, something that China is careful to do only when they want to, which is that, you know, they could have to uh, set aside their expectations regarding economic growth and, you know, peaceful international relations and be ready to think about what they need to do for the motherland in wartime.
0: And then three, John, because of the Pelosi visit... What do you think might be different in a year or more in terms of PLA operations near Taiwan, how China responds to U.S. Navy transits through the Taiwan Straits, freedom of navigation operations, say in the South China Sea, or surveillance and reconnaissance operations off, the, off of China's coast? Oh, great question. You know, uh, the
3: exercise that Chinese announced lasted from, I think, the 3rd of August to the 8th or the 7th, our time. It's hard with the international dateline to figure out sometimes. But the thing is, the PLA activity didn't stop. And with the, you know, Chris earlier mentioned that Senator Markey's delegation landed in Taiwan um, yesterday. The Chinese then announced they were going to do additional drills. And the thing is, what we're seeing, at least as far as I can tell from the Taiwan Ministry of National Defense is the same activity that continued after the exercise following Pelosi's departure, which is there are aircraft flying over the middle of the center line, uh, which is something the Chinese didn't do prior to the Pelosi visit. And those have continued every day since the formal exercise was wrapped up. So it's a case where they're not doing anything different than they were doing two days ago, but they're announcing it. So they're turning it into a signal I think we do live in a new normal now. I think things the Chinese had avoided that they then set precedence breaking last week, they're going to keep doing, especially on the center line and then probably flights around the island. One thing that didn't get a lot of attention, but was also discussed by Taiwan military sources openly was there were Chinese unmanned vehicles flying around the eastern side of the island. So all the way on the other side from where China sits, you had long-range Chinese reconnaissance drones flying around. And I think we're going to see just a heightened tempo of activity, not continuously, but similar to what they've done in the Senkaku since that issue heated up with Japan in 2012, where to this very day, the Chinese are demonstrating a new normal where every month or so they will send Coast Guard ships inside the territorial waters around the Senkaku Islands. And so I think that, you know, that's a very good demonstration. You know, it's been decades, 20 years since the PLA was what you might call a noisy demonstration force. When challenge over sovereignty, and we've seen this on the Indian border and in the South China Sea, they don't just bang trash can lids and complain loudly. They change the status quo. And I think that's what we're seeing with Taiwan
0: now. So, Chris, let me come back to you with a couple of questions on the political front. First, um, Will this episode have any effect, do you think, on the 20th Party Congress or China's overall Taiwan policy or its overall approach to the US?
2: I think uh, it certainly has the potential to, as as John was just saying, on the approach to the US. I do think they are trying to signal a new normal in the way they operate. They are trying to get our attention. And I think that's been something that is really a takeaway or should be a takeaway for the US administration in this, is is that... Why did they do what they just did? We may come back to this at some point and talking about the administration's reaction, but it was because they felt they weren't being listened to, or if they were being listened to, they were being ignored. You know, and that obviously is something that then would seem to cause them to feel, well, maybe we have to do even more. So I think that's important. Uh, I think in terms of the Twentieth Party Congress, what was fascinating to me in the run-up to Pelosi's visit was what seemed, again, to use my earlier analogy to be something akin to F5 on a lot of people's computers or laptops, which was this idea that you know xi jinping can't afford right now to be humiliated or to look weak because he's in the run-up to the 20th Party Congress seeking this sort of unusual or atypical third term and maybe more in office. And therefore, because of that, there was this impression that he was sort of perhaps unpredictable, right? And, and that if Pelosi even went at all, he may not be able to control the desire to you know do something really demonstrative, kind of what John was suggesting earlier in terms of actual response. And we saw this in some of the reactions from the Chinese public where they sort of reacted themselves to Beijing's clear misplaying of its propaganda and saying, well, we're going to escort the flight down and we're going to not allow this to happen and so on. And then when it did, the the public was sort of like, what's going on here? (laughs) And the point is that because Xi Jinping is so Firmly in charge, especially of the military. He was in full control of the situation all along. And that's an important thing, you know, to get right in terms of your analytic call. Is he really weak or under pressure? Or is he strong and in control? Because it gives you a sense of what you can do in response without escalation. Just to, you know, kind of give an example in that space in that 9596 episode it was exactly the opposite situation Jiang Zemin who was the president at the time had not fully consolidated his control over the PLA he literally was almost grabbed by the on the lapels by you know these cranky revolutionary credential generals who said we're going to do something even though they had real concerns about missiles potentially going awry and so on. We did not see that in this scenario. And in fact, just to draw that contrast, what we did see was Xi Jinping, right as that was all going on, being escorted around by the top uniformed officer in the PLA in a new display in the military museum in Beijing, highlighting up Xi's many achievements and his control over the military. So I think that's a very significant difference in that respect.
0: Yeah. Chris, why don't we take on the Biden administration point right now? Do you have any insight into how they thought about the Pelosi trip b- before the trip, right? We heard the president say the U.S. military was opposed. You know, did the White House see an upside? Did they see this as a net negative? Did they try to talk her out of it? You know, what's your sense? Yeah,
2: I think it's at some level it's impossible, really, for us to know exactly when went on. But I think what we can say is that if the administration did try to talk her out of the trip, that's an open question. Their response seemed what I would call sort of both late and disjointed. Late in the sense that When Speaker Pelosi initially postponed her trip in April after contracting COVID, you could make the case the White House then had four months to quietly persuade her that this was not a good idea. Apparently, did not do that, and then may have, depending on which media story you read, leaked the news that she was considering a new trip to the media, which immediately put the White House on the defensive in terms of you know perception management and so on. The disjointed part of it, I think, of their response was Biden's public comments, as you mentioned, that the military thought the trip was a bad idea which i think was probably read both domestically and by foreign allies and partners that somehow he needed to use that as a crutch of sorts to control someone from his own party when the constitution makes clear that the president can make foreign policy so it looked a bit disjointed uh, also there seemed to have been a sort of painful back and forth that played out in the media in media leaks after the trip where the administration seemed to be trying to throw Pelosi under the bus for the trip and then her side seemed to to push back so no one looked authoritative right in a moment where the increase in tensions makes doing so incredibly important. I'm glad you raised the domestic political angle. I would say, again, we can't really know what was going on in President Biden's mind, but my sense would be that his reasons for not blocking the trip probably were three. Uh, One, I think, you know, he has a genuine like for uh, Speaker Pelosi, but more importantly, probably as a 40-year veteran of the Senate himself, he probably is sympathetic to that idea, right, that congressional leaders view that their institutional prerogatives grant them some role in foreign policy. Second, obviously, it wouldn't be a good look to have a major public spat between the number one and number two Democrats at a time where you know their prospects for the midterms might be modestly improving. And three, I think he was concerned about looking soft on China in a way that would provide what we might call red meat to to Republicans. So to your point, note that all three of these motives are exclusively in the domestic realm, which might lend some credibility or weight to uh, Henry Kissinger's comments around the time of the visit that for far too long, you know, U.S. policy toward China has primarily been being driven by the ever-worsening domestic political narrative around China. And Mm -hmm. that approach also raises real questions then, I think, around whether or not President Biden is too weak politically to be able to conduct that pure, realist, national interest-focused foreign policy when the circumstances require it. Um, And then just quickly as to whether the U.S. saw any upside to the trip, I think that could be reflected in their, what I I would call their nothing to see here response to the exercises. You know, by caricaturing China's response as that of a sort of child throwing a tantrum or a schoolyard bully, I think the administration may have been trying to kind of sharpen the comparison to Russia as part of its efforts to promote this narrative of a Russia-China new access with the goal of, you know, mobilizing domestic audiences for the policy of sort of a forward-leaning strategic competition with China, while perhaps also trying to win Hearts and minds, I guess you could say, among allied country officialdom and the general public's. You know, if that was some of the motivations for adopting the stance, it's unclear to me how effective that may be or have been. If, for example, China did what it did, as I mentioned earlier, because it wants, it felt Washington wasn't hearing it, a response that emphasizes ignoring China's actions, in my mind, would seem to incentivize them to uh, to kind of turn it up to 11, as, <laughs> as John was suggesting. And I think likewise, you know, there was some at least initial critical response from close allies like the Australian foreign minister, Penny Wong, about that, you know, pretty strongly hinted at the U.S. kind of foisted this crisis on us for no good reason at a time where, in Australia's case, they're trying to make some moves toward uh, repairing their own relationship with Beijing.
0: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping
2: murder mystery
0: So guys, I want to I want to kind of close here by kind of looking out and talking about, you know, under what circumstances China might decide to use force against Taiwan and then whether their capabilities are such that they can do that now or do they need more time. And so, John, in addition to some capability building on the amphibious front, is there anything else that the Chinese would need to do to significantly increase their chances of being successful in a reunification by force scenario?
3: Um, short answer, yes, but then big, big caveat. If Taiwan backed by, especially the United States, took step toward permanent separation tomorrow, China would go to war tomorrow. So it isn't just a military calculation that there are, you know, a few more turns of the screw and, and tightening of the bolts and then the PLA is going to be ready And that will drive China's decision. It will remain a political decision. And I think even for Xi Jinping, you know, I think Chris characterized his consolidation of power pretty correctly. But even for Xi, Taiwan is a crisis to be avoided, not an opportunity to be seized. So if China can avoid, you know, um, a series of circumstances where they feel compelled to go to war, they will always want to further improve military capabilities to give them a higher sense of success. And the main things that are still lacking are um, net amphibious lift, the ability to manage large-scale U.S. intervention, which they can never discount. You know, it's interesting. They've built a very modern military and a very large and modern Navy, but they haven't built the essential vessels that they would need, especially the more expendable, smaller ones, that would ensure success in an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. If they have to move 150,000 troops across the Taiwan Straits, they can maybe do a fifth of that today. So unless you want to entertain notions that they're going to get very creative with helicopters and aircraft and try to do things that most military experts think would be bad ideas, like try to do an airborne assault or use a lot of merchant ships, which can look great on paper, but they still need a port. So if you need to seize a beachhead, then you're going to need flat-bottom you know, amphibious assault vessels. And the number of dedicated LSTs that China has has actually declined over the last 10 years. So they have left of that kind of dedicated and expendable lift than they did a decade ago. What they have built are some really big ships, not just aircraft carriers, but um, helicopter carriers and big things called amphibious docks. But again, those are big, capable ships that are great if you want to impress people in the South China Sea. Do you really want to lose it off a beach off the coast of Taiwan? Because that's a very non-expendable asset, any of those vessels. So I think you need to see something more along those lines.
0: So, John, in addition to some capability building on the amphibious front, is there anything else else? That the Chinese would need to do to significantly increase their chances of being successful in a reunification by force scenario?
3: They're on the right track. I mean, one of the things that's worried longtime analysts like me of the PLA is that they've made very few wrong moves for the last 20 years. So they've built a lot of regional strike capability. They've effectively targeted every pillar of U.S. power projection in East Asia, uh, from carrier battle groups to uh, our bases in the region our reliance on air power, our need to be able to control space, long-range communications. So the main thing they need is larger ability to have a highly assured amphibious landing capability, and then the ability to gain air superiority over Taiwan, whether the U.S. intervenes or not.
0: And then, Chris, back to you on sort of the politics of all this political decision-making. You know, John said, you know, if they had to go to war now, they would. Under what circumstances, a Taiwanese declaration of independence, you know, under what circumstances would they go to war? You know, is it a declaration of independence? Is it a referendum on independence that passes? Is it an official change in our one China policy? I mean, what would force their hand at this point?
2: Right, I think certainly, probably all of those that you you just highlighted would be things that would, in their mind, feel that they would have to do something more than just demonstrative. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I just refer back probably to the top of our discussion in terms of their motivations for the recent this demonstration that we've just seen, and to put it in a bumper sticker form, as long as their perception remains that the U.S. is moving toward, you know, de facto support for Taiwan independence, they will be more inclined, I think, to warn the U.S. of the potential consequences of those actions through, you know, a continuation of what John referred to earlier as the new normal. I do think I would just highlight as well, coming back to what I said earlier, what's been interesting in this episode was that it was not one specific action, right? Lee Dong hui gets a visit to the United States, the former Taiwan president that kicked off the 95-96 episode, or, or President Trump making public commentary, this was an accumulation of, of sort of U.S. actions over time, many of which never came to fruition, right? Yes, there was a debate about abandoning strategic ambiguity, but it was basically quashed by President Biden, in my understanding, thank goodness for that. So in other words, we're getting into this weird space now where they may feel increasingly that they have to do something barring a if it's short of a formal declaration of independence or a formal acknowledgement by the U.S. of, you know, something crazy like diplomatic relations. Uh, You know, I say something crazy, but, you know, people like former Secretary Pompeo and other Republican potential presidential candidates have discussed this as a possibility, you know, in their public remarks and so on. And that all, I think, contributes to Beijing's concerns. So we may find ourselves increasingly in that position where what we traditionally thought were the very few and very unlikely red lines that they absolutely would have to react to. Maybe it would be something different in the future. And I think that's a very important distinction.
0: Okay. And we have two minutes left, so I'm going to give each of you a minute to answer final question for me, which is, are you at all concerned that the anti-China politics here in the U.S. and the nationalism, the growing nationalism that we see in China, you know, partly stoked by Xi himself – could lead to a war that no one really wants. John, why don't you go first?
3: Not as a direct cause, but certainly as an atmospheric, where if you have another event more serious from a Chinese perspective than a Pelosi visit, or military action by China more serious than their reaction to Pelosi's visit, then you have to worry about a perfect storm scenario where things less than a clear-cut, you know, cost us belli for China, or a clear-cut You know, actions by China that the US feels it needs to respond to militarily can operate in a different environment than we were used to, say, 20 years ago, where you have a pretty strong bipartisan consensus to be strong against China. And it's that one of these episodes turns into something more like a Cuban Missile Crisis, if not, you know, uh, the US China war, that it actually becomes not just a debatable crisis the US says didn't, you know, shouldn't have risen to that level but one that actually causes major uh, risk of direct conflict. Chris?
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. I would uh, just kind of come back to what we were talking about earlier, where we did see some aspect of this on display on the Chinese side, where it was very clear that the party had misplayed its hand in terms of making a lot of uh, heavy noise about somehow preventing speaker pelosi from visiting you know that this was not allowed to happen so we saw things you know there are folks who track what appears on weibo you know chinese social media very carefully and there was a great line about that someone had up there about you know the security guard at my compound does and he's asleep half the time but he does a better job of keeping people out who aren't supposed to be (laughs) aren't supposed to be in so there was a day or two where it looked like they'd misplayed it what also though was i think interesting was how quickly through the exercises and their you know sort of very smart packaging of, of media and photo op and other things, uh, they were able to kind of get that back on on track and make the Chinese people kind of feel like, okay, we've we've shown them that you know we're we're serious. So you know, and it's always very difficult, I think, in this space as well. Both you know whether you want to say that the sentiment in the U.S. And, and sort of anti-China or or this nationalism stuff on China, there's always that it could go out of control. You sound a bit like Chicken Little, right? <laughs> when you're constantly focusing on that, and yet. It could go out of control. So it's these things are very, very difficult. I think, you know, more troubling from the US side, just to close, would be the issue of all these bills that, you know, some of which have really serious provisions that are going through Congress. You know, in this environment we're going into, we're just gonna see more and more of that activity. And, you know, typically you might say, Well, the, the cooler heads will prevail and that stuff will be edited out of the bills and so on. I'm not so sure.
0: Yeah. All right. John, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Fascinating discussion. Thank you.
2: Pleasure as always. Yes, my pleasure, Michael.
0: That was John Culver and Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit CBSNews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.